Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, this week we got Andrew Putnam on the podcast. A lot to talk about, of course, the, the rollback with the ball discussion with that at the USGA. What were his initial thoughts about that? We're going to get right into that here in our discussion. We'll do a little bit of uh, reaction to that. What could this mean for majors going forward? What if they have a different ball? What does he think of the PGA Tour's reaction to this and and what's in their best interest? So just some, some overall kind of initial thoughts from Andrew Putnam on this topic. We'll get to that kind of of, uh, a few minutes into this podcast. I'm going to start with a couple stories, though, uh, with his older brother, Michael Putnam. Of course, Michael was on the PGA Tour before Andrew, Andrew, the younger brother. Andrew's 34 now. Uh, but still, a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting insight there, what he learned from his brother overall. What kind of advice has he given him? Uh, fun story as well. Uh, Max Homa, too. They, they actually go back for a number of years uh, on Corn Ferry Tour. Early days, uh, Andrew and, and Max. So we get into that as well and why Max's caddy, Joe Griner, such a solid caddy, a little insight from Andrew, uh, what he had picked up uh, over the years from those guys. So anyway, we'll get into this here. Andrew Putnam, he's got some putting tips in here as well. Putty's putting tips. There you go. I said it. Silly, silly me. But um, a lot of fun stuff. He is at an interesting point in his career. There's a lot he's learned from being in final round, I should say final groups in final rounds. He's done it, so I think two times, three times this season in the wraparound. A lot of good adrenaline, adrenaline, a lot of good things he's been able to pick up uh, from those situations. So let's get to Andrew Putnam on Beyond the Clubhouse. All right, my next guest, Andrew Putnam, PGA Tour winner. He's 66 in the official world golf rankings right now, 29th on FedEx Cup. And here we are almost halfway through the season. And uh, Andrew, what's been going on, man? How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wild to think we're already halfway through. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, here we are. It's the end of March, and there's a lot that's yeah. been going on um, in, in in news and golf right now. Of course, the rollback, as mentioned, about the USGA came out today. We can get into that a little bit later. But I wanted to start a little bit with your background and talk of some stories here for a minute. Your older brother, obviously, Michael Putnam, was on the tour before you, so you kind of got to see what that was like uh, as a younger brother. But it's funny, growing up, or even as you guys were pros together, what's a story with your older brother that just sticks with you? That's just a funny time of you guys ribbing each other or just a kind of brother to brother? <laughs> a story. Um, well, I guess an interesting story was our first, we, we got paired together only like, probably only one time as professionals. Um, and it was in Panama and uh, for like a corn fairy event. Or sorry, isn't isn't Chile when they used to go way back to down to Chile, and um, that was when he was playing pretty good. I mean, he was uh, probably I think he was number one on the money list that year, and so you know he was one of the hot hands. And I think it was my rookie year, and uh, I remember playing, and I was probably inside the cut line by like four going into the back nine, and Michael was playing well, like he was well inside, having a good year, and. And I had one of those classic back nine, just absolute 
was crumbling <laughs> and my oldest brother Joel was on Michael's bag. And so they were like, just watching me just absolutely melt down and crumble. And I was going to miss the cut. I know I got to the last hole par five and I had like a three foot putt and I'm typically a pretty good putter. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's gotten pretty silent and it's just, it's kind of awkward. Cause you know, he's, it's not like your normal playing partner where it's like, uh, kind of doesn't matter what they're doing. You're kind of focused on your own thing when it's your brother. You're like, <laughs> I'm sure he was like rooting for me. And I remember missing his three footer thinking I missed the cut and just being so mad. And that was our first ever event. I think only time we ever played together professionals missed it. Thought I missed the cut, you know, being all the way down in Chile. I was like, I got to fly 12 hours all the way home, missing a cut, just so mad. And funny enough, it ended up, the cup moved and I ended up making it, but <laughs> kind of a interesting one, one time we ever played together as pros, um, as brothers, you know, it's pretty, pretty, uh, rare for brothers to be on tour together. So kind of a funny first, <laughs> first and only tournament experience we had together. Yeah. That, well, that's crazy. And it's funny when I think of your older brother, obviously he played on Walker cup teams. He had a, a, a great amateur career before he turned pro, turned pro. And yeah, has there been any kind of advice that, that he's kind of helped pass down? I know you're 34 now and um, I don't know any kind of uh, nuggets he's kind of helped you with along these years that you've been pro since 2011. So. I think, I think less about what he said and just kind of how he's shown me, you know, the ropes and uh, kind of paved the path. And I was just able to kind of watch how he did things and, and learn a lot from him. And then um, I think just, you know, he always had a lot of confidence in my game more than I probably had. You know, you always tell people that I'm, I was better than him. <laughs> and clearly when he was saying that I wasn't, but you know, he kind of spoke that in existence at some point. I mean, he kind of had a tough last few years as a pro he got hurt and, and uh, you know, it's tough coming back from injuries in golf, but um, yeah, I think just him having that confidence, him being at the top level, I mean, obviously was maybe number one amateur coming out with a really strong class, you know? So he, he was a great player himself. So him giving me that confidence boost to myself was huge. Yeah. It's funny. The image I have of your brother, I remember, um, gosh, it was 2014, 2015, the Phoenix open. I remember in the parking lot, he was already wearing like a Seattle Seahawks Jersey that he was going to wear later that day on 16. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny in your experience on 16 at Scottsdale, what's been the funnest moment you've had there, whether it's wearing a Jersey or, or just uh, interacting with the crowd. Gosh, I mean, I haven't had any like crazy moments where I've been in like contention plan. You know, the, the one time I, I did well there, I, I think I finished like top five playing with Rom the last day. Um, but it was during the COVID year when there was like no one out there. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't had any, I mean, I haven't had any too good of stories uh, to share with you for that, from that experience. I haven't, you know, I've missed the cut a couple of times and, uh, but every time, every time you're there, it's just, it's so fun to play that hole. Um, I think if, like my rookie year, I was pretty nervous, but now it's, it's just kind of embrace the moment. It's a lot of fun. Very what unique did... for us to feel like actual athletes for a little bit. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's funny. You said you were playing with Rom there on that, on, on that day. What did you see out of Rom early? Um, I don't know. I beat him that day. I had no bogeys. I had no <laughs> bogeys that whole tournament, actually. It was kind of a wild 72 holes, no bogeys. So, um, I don't know. I felt pretty good. I felt pretty good about my game stacking up to him that week, but obviously, you know, um, that's golf. I mean, anyone can beat anyone over one tournament or a round. And, uh, 
his consistency, you know, recently has been um, off the charts. So he's, uh, yeah, his career has gone, gone off pretty well since then. Yeah. Well, another a friend of yours whose career has really gone off pretty well and something you played with uh, for a couple of years on the web.com, uh, now Corn Ferry, but uh, Max Homa. Um, yeah. You guys go back quite a few years. And so I'm just curious, like, what's a story that comes to mind or a couple of favorite stories for you guys, uh, you know, maybe back in those earlier years? Yeah, I mean, we traveled quite a bit together. Um, you know, my was it my rookie year on the PGA Tour. His caddy, Joe, and my caddy were the kind of best friends. They kind of all grew up in Valencia with Max, and and so uh, I I've kind of seen the you know the flip side of Max's career. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was with him when I mean, I mean he he's talked about it quite a bit on podcasts where he just you know it was tough. Like he he just did not have a good you know rookie year on the PJ tour. It was, uh, very stressful. And, and, uh, I think he put a, you know, he put a lot of pressure on himself. Like, any, I mean, I did the exact same thing. I didn't have a very good rookie year and I put a lot of pressure on myself too. You, you uh, you're like, I finally made it, you know, on the PJ tour. And then, um, some, sometimes the year can just spiral downward and you kind of get in this weird, uh, this funk where it's just hard to get out because you're just playing every week. Your confidence is going downhill and you just kind of spiral and, so that's kind of what I experienced with Max. You know, it was tough to watch because you know how talented the guy is. I mean, he's so good. Um, and he he played really well, you know, getting to the tour that first time. And then, yeah, it just was a rough year. And so I just – I remember a lot of missed cuts, you know, <laughs> from both of us. So um, it's been really great to see him have, a lot, you know, the success he's had. And, um, I, you know, I, I had Mark Blackburn as my – my coach that kind of got me to the PJ tour for the first time and um, seeing him link up with Mark and having that success is pretty cool. And obviously his caddy Joe is such a great guy. It's been a, they're a good duo to root for. Yeah. And, and they, they get along so well. It seems like they just have like a, just a, a real natural friendship that, that just works well under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, I mean, honestly, Joe's, Joe's probably top, top three caddy on the PJ tour. His is like, there's not many, there's not many guys that have, you know, every facet of like what a good caddy would have. I mean, he's got like, he's got like the funny, you know, humor. He's, he's got that golf sense, golf IQ where he can just read the situation and he knows Max, like, you know, like himself, like he knows what Max is feeling and thinking like, he just has that. He has, you know, every little, every little thing you need in a caddy. Um, and he, and he obviously his personality just fits Max so well. It's uh, they're very good uh, partnership. Yeah, and well, I know that you had a partnership with uh, Carl Smith, and like I think you referred to him earlier there out of Valencia. Really good guy. He's with Sahithagala now. Um, yeah, but man, like this, just kind of na navigating those early years with Carl. Like how how, how was that? I mean, I, I'd imagine. It, it can be lonely out there. I know that you made a pretty good run at Riviera when I met you in 2016. I think you were a rookie then. Uh, you had a good round, mm -hmm. like a good round, a flash, right? But but how was it navigating things early with with Carl? So I actually had so I had Johnny MacArthur on my bag when I was a rookie. He was from yeah. Valencia, and then later Carl. Yeah, so a couple of different Pepperdine okay. guys. Um, so Johnny Johnny's good friends with uh, Max and Joe and all those guys. Um, but he was, yeah, he was one of my college teammates and he was a, he's a great caddy too. I mean, really good art worker, 
he knew what I was thinking out there. Like he could pick the club for me and he'd sense the situation. And uh, um, it was great. I mean, we had a great time and, you know, I think it was a little frustrating on his end because as a caddy, like all your success is dependent upon your player's performance. Right. (laughs) So you can go out there, you can be out there working as hard as you can be. You can, you know, be walking the courses, doing all the prep. And at the end of the day, if your player's not playing well, you, you, you get nothing for it. Right. You get yeah. nothing. And so that was hard on Johnny. Cause he came, you know, he, he had a successful golf career and, you know, he comes from a family that, you know, his dad played major league and major league baseball. And just, they're very, his grandpa's a pretty big time pastor in the, in, you know, SoCal. And so I think it's, you know, it's hard as a, um, when you're a caddy, if you're, if you're with the player and he's, and he's underperforming and you're working hard, you know, your success is tied to him. So, um, but you know, we had a good, I mean, obviously it's great when you're both single and your friends traveling together, it's, it's, uh, it's still a lot of fun. For sure. Well, I look at, um, there's some recent PJ tour changes, obviously, even a couple of weeks ago, there was a change of like top 70 lip more limited field events that are going to be coming up for these designated events. Uh, so I was curious, like, what's your initial reaction to that? I, I know you've had a good year so far, 29th at FedEx Cup. But I mean, last year, for example, you wouldn't have been this this solidly uh, in position to get into what will be eventually top 70 uh, designated events next year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just there's a lot a lot of changes going on. It's It's like hard to. You know, it's like there's all these it's like a big experiment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I felt like the tour had quite a bit of stability for, I don't know, years and years and years. You kind of know what to expect every year and very predictable schedule. Um, and the last like three years has just been all over the place, you know? So, you know, it, it's going to be, I think there's good and bad to, to both aspects of this. I mean, the money's gotten huge and it it is a little bit, of a interesting feeling going to some of those tournaments with, you know, the huge money. I mean, it's just like, there's a different feel between that and the, some of the other events. And I'm not sure that's great. <laughs> you know, that there's, there's such a disparity between those, those tournaments. Um, I mean, it's, it's great if you're in them and, you know, this year I'm, I'm in all of them really. So that's really great. But um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to process it all because, you know, it's just, everything's changing so fast. And uh, I don't know, I don't know how sustainable it is for the tour to, to be doing this. And uh, I'm kind of curious about the sponsors are, are saying behind closed doors, you know, cause they're the ones having to foot the bill. Like, you know, you hear about, it, I mean, it sounds great. Like the, the purses are doubling and all that stuff. And you're like, Hmm, you know, how, how, how does that work out, you know, financially for these, uh, these companies that are the ones paying for it. So it's, uh, it's all very interesting and, you know, things can always change just as quickly as they have recently, you know, going, going forward in the future. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's, it's, uh, it's good for golf media, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of new stories coming out. So there's uh plenty to write about. For sure. Well, it's interesting when you think about like, for example, Pebble Beach next year is going to be designated. And, you know, that's a place that you love to to play one of your favorite spots in the world. And 
if you don't if you don't get into some of these events i guess i'm just thinking like does this at least the way it currently constructed does it favor the the better players too much right now or or how, how do you look at it i mean i know next year is kind of where where the real big changes happen with with these smaller events but the smaller events is that going to be it, it just just you grind you try to get in them as best you can like how do you have the right mentality you know yeah you know i was kind of surprised that the fedex cup points were going to be um change as much as they did you know they're obviously going to be bumped up quite a bit for those elevated events so they're those players will have a you know quite a quite an advantage on in on accruing points you know if you're finishing the top 30 there's quite a few more points than a, a, a you know a normal event i guess so um that's a little surprising that it's that it's going to be weighted that heavily for those events i mean i understand why there would be some difference but um yeah i don't know it'll it's hard to know how it's going to all play out i mean they I talked to Jason Gore about it for a little while at uh, the player championship and they have all their, you know, statistician and numbers people who kind of provide these formulas of how it's going to look and how much access is you know, in churn and, you know, how, how many people will drop out of the top 50, how many people will have access to get in the top 50, you know, and uh, they have, they, they probably figured it out pretty good, but um, you know, it, it'll probably, you know, not look exactly like, they're putting it forward right now. I'm sure there'll be still some tweaks and changes and uh, yeah, I'm not sure how it's all going to play out. It's all so new. Yeah. Well, speaking of so new, I mean, today, obviously USGA and the RNA talked about uh, their proposal to that local rule that would eventually uh, roll back the ball for kind of like the elite golfers, right? Like in 2026. And so what's kind of your yeah. initial reaction to, to that, that idea? <clears throat> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just quickly read over the memo and it's, it, it sounded like it would be changed starting what 2026 would be the first season that they might implement that. Um, I, I mean, I think it's fine either way. I mean, I understand the reasoning behind it, you know, they're just having to make golf courses so much further, you know, longer and, and, uh, and obviously that's not sustainable with, with all the, you know, initiatives going around like sustainability and trying to, you know, decrease the amount of water being used and all that. So I get all that stuff, you know, can't build courses, 8,000 yards. Um, but also I would say in general, the, at the professional level, you know, you can prove that people are, that the people playing are, are working out harder. They're swinging harder. They're training for that. So the increase in driving distance shouldn't be a surprise. It's not a, I don't feel like the golf balls changed much in the last five years, really, you know, stayed pretty consistent. And I think the increase in distance is just a, you know, a matter of more athletic players coming into the game. A lot of bigger players like Dustin Johnson, stronger guys, kids who've been training their whole life. So um, I kind of see both, both sides of it. And uh, you know, the tour doesn't really have to follow the rule, you know, whatever the USGA or the PGA uh, PGA section puts forth with the RNA. So I guess the tour kind of does what's in their best interest and they'll, they'll get input from players and figure out what they want to do. Yeah. And they did kind of mention that in their memo as well, that, you know, ultimately we're listening to the USGA, but you know, we yeah. are, we're also 
looking out for the interests of our elite players and the fans, the fan experience, right? So I guess with yeah. that, like what, I, I know, I guess, what do you make of, of that reaction to, to, to the news? Yeah. I mean, that's what they've always said. And and honestly, the, the tour would, I would say that they're skewed towards wanting to, I wouldn't say give an advantage to the longer players, but the, I think fans like seeing the bombers, right? Like that, that plays well on TV, seeing guys hit at 350, 360. And so I think that's where the game's gone. And, you know, there's there's a lot of attention that that's brought to guys who can smash it. You know, it's fun to see. So right. I think uh, in the tours, you know, the tour has an interest of uh, keeping fans and, and keeping them interested and seeing people smash the ball and seeing bigger athletes play golf. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they'll actually end up falling. Depends how it depends how much, you know, they're going to try to roll back the ball, but doesn't seem like it'd be in the best interest of the tour and developing new younger fans. Yeah. Well, for somebody like you, who's not a top 10 driver in the world, for example, like how do you look at, at what rolling the back the ball back would do for, for you in, in relation to the other, other players? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think it would be overall it would probably benefit me a little bit if you put more spin on the ball and uh, do some of that stuff. So I mean, I don't think it would be a negative because um, some of those, I mean, I don't know the science of balls too much, but <laughs> I know like there's certain parts of the ball that, you know, that the stronger core or harder cores or something, you got to have a certain swing speed to really get the benefit from that. And so, um, yeah, I guess there's a possibility it could benefit me because I'm a shorter guy and maybe not lose quite as much distance as someone who bombs it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, and you know, they, they would say, higher swing speed and ball speed should generate more spin. And, and so it'd be harder to control for someone with higher ball speed. So yeah, it could benefit me, but I think it will, I think it will impact everyone very similarly. For sure. Well, and also hypothetically, like you think about like major championships, like if they did change things, uh, the governing bodies, right. And then the governing bodies bought into it, but then, so, so during the majors, you would have a different ball hypothetically, right. What, yeah. what, how would that play out? Would you see? <clears throat> that would not be good. Because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I mean, that's from a player's perspective, I think the hardest change to make is like um, a ball change, you know, because that affects every club that you hit, right? So a change in the ball changes everything. And um, that would be, that would be very challenging for players to have to, you know, somehow prepare and adjust to that ball for those four weeks a year and then have to go back the next few (laughs) weeks, you know, that would just, that would, that would be very bizarre. I mean, I got a little taste of that playing in that, you know, the team championship the tour has, um, you play, you play someone else's ball. So like, I think one of the times I played a pro V that was a, like a black pro V and I'd play a, a less spinny tricks on. And so, you know, just having to adjust to see the flight, the flight was different and the spin rate was different. It, it was weird. It was very, very challenging and strange. So, and, in, and that's going from a ball that's, you know, very similar to mine compared to, I'm sure if they're going to make a change, they're going to make it more drastic. So that'd be, that'd be tough. Yeah. Might be entertaining for the fans to watch a little bit, but <laughs> I don't know if the players would enjoy, enjoy having to 
um, relearn how to, you know, see how this ball flies. Yeah. And, and overall, like, where would you like to see this discussion going? I mean, I know there's a long ways to go uh, with it in these next three and a half years or whatever, but where would you like to see the direction of it go? I mean, I feel like that's, for me, I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it. I mean, there's a lot smarter people that are working on that than I am. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I don't think the ball it has gotten in the last five years has gotten much longer. Like, I don't think there's been a lot of increase in distance. So I think the, the future potential of like increased distance is not really there. So, um, either way, I don't think there's a lot to worry about. Um, just because I think you've kind of, in some ways there's, there's some limits on, you know, how good and how much more uh, distance the balls can provide. For sure. Well, I'm looking ahead in the schedule. I know that you've played one masters. You talked about the COVID years. There's that one year you were in all the majors there, but you played one masters yeah. and it was during COVID 2020. Uh, so I'm curious, I, I know you'd love to be back there. I'd imagine, but how, how much would you love to get back to Augusta, play it in the spring, play it, um, get back to that tournament? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge goal. Obviously uh, playing, playing it when there was no fans is, you know, it's bizarre. <laughs> Um, I mean, getting there is it's just such a unique and special place, but like, yeah, it, with no crowds, it just was not, just wasn't how majors are supposed to be played. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's the, the energy level and the excitement and the, you know, just the overall vibe being there, just so different without crowds. So, um, and I think I, like I was only allowed to have one guest. So my wife, like my wife couldn't even come watch me, um, it just was bizarre. This is a very strange year. And, uh, and the way the course played just didn't set up very good for my game is very soft and long. So just seeing how it played last year in the spring, just very firm and fast and, uh, mentally just tricky. I think that that suits my game a lot better. So, so yeah, I need, I need to have some good golf coming up here soon to, to get in it. So hopefully can do that. Well, speaking of good golf, you played in a couple final groups in the fall, uh, of course, you played a pebble in the final group there in 2022. What does that mm -hmm. adrenaline feel like and how much, you know, how addicting is it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely like there's definitely a learning curve to it because um, I'm still trying to figure out how to crack the code. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> I feel like I've, I've had a good, you know, I've, I've done a pretty good job of getting in some of those final groups, you know, like you said, um, and just didn't feel like I. I quite carried my same, same game or same just approach into that final round that I did the, the, the you know, the prior three rounds that got me into it. And, uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's where you want to be. It's like, it's where it's the most fun with all the fans and the attention and you're in a position where you can do something, uh, you know, obviously life-changing on the tour. If you win, it's, it's life-changing. And so, um, yeah, just trying to get in that position as much as I can to learn how to how to close like some of the guys like Scotty. I mean, the guy just feel like he gets right near the lead and he closes every time. And even Max Oma, if he he's been a guy that, you know, if he sniffs sniffs on a lead, I feel like that guy just somehow excels and closes. So um trying to learn learn from them and uh yeah, get get in that position a few more times. Since from being a younger player to, to where you are now, what have you really learned about yourself that you think will help you crack the code, as you say? Yeah. 
Uh, I think just, you know, being comfortable in those situations is the biggest thing, you know, like first few years, I, I remember playing my rookie year. I was final group with Phil Mickelson, the shell Houston open. I'm like, I sat, I think it was a Saturday and I just, I mean, I felt so nervous and just out of my body. Like it's just hard to even explain like the feelings that were going on. Like, you know, hitting that first tee shot, I felt like I just couldn't even feel my body. So like, obviously comparing then to now is just completely different mindset and just way more comfortable in those situations. So, um, I think the, the thing I need to learn how to do is just be able to stay as aggressive as I, as I am those first three days going into a Sunday. Cause I've, I've played with a handful, handful of people that have won, you know, on Sundays and, and been there. Um, the Sony I played with, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but whoever won the Sony this year, sorry, yeah. but, uh, he, uh, he, I, I watched him win this year and, and it's like, you got to have some breaks go your way, but you got to, I mean, you just got to go for it. Like you can't be worrying about making mistakes and making bogeys. You have to play well on the PJ tour. You can't, you can't really coast your way into a win unless you have like a seven shot lead, you know? So that's the thing that I think um, if there was something I need to prove on, that's it. Definitely. Well, let's segue uh, the last part of the podcast here. We'll talk about putting your overall advice to us at home. Um, how can we get better at putting? And so I know you got a putter there and uh, feel free mm -hmm. to, to grab it if you need, but uh, let me just do this for a self-contained part of these last five minutes. I'll just say, um, okay, Garrett Johnston here with Andrew Putnam. And, you know, let's, let's talk about putties putting advice for us at home. And I'm just thinking, you know, Andrew, for you, what are a couple of really good putting drills we could practice uh, just in general on the putting green to get better? Yeah. So I would, I would say I got two pretty good drills um, that I work on. I mean, my overall putting philosophy would be that I, I like to use the bigger muscles to move the putter. Some people tend to, you know, like to have more of the wrists involved and hit at it. Um, I think it's, I think under pressure, especially, you know, if you can eliminate the small little flinchy movements with your wrists, I think you're going to be a lot more consistent putter and you're going to, um, you're just going to have more consistent contact with the ball and consistent control of your face. So using your bigger muscles and learning how to do that, I think is the key. And so I could show you um, a couple of drills that I do pretty much every day that could kind of help you with that and very simple to do. So I do this. I actually do this every day when I'm, when I'm on the golf course. Um, first drill is pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's something I learned from my golf coach up in the Northwest, uh, Joe Teal. He had us do this a lot. Um, my whole goal is to have this, you probably heard of this uh, notion of having rocking your pen, uh, pendulum, right? You want this V your arms and chest and shoulders all connected to the club. Right. And it's like, For you sure. want to keep this, you want to keep this, I guess, Y or V moving and not breaking down and basically staying uh, the same all the way through the stroke, right? And so one way to work on um, improving that is one-handed putting. I mean, it's something that I, I always do. And um, several ways you can do it. You can put your put your arm on, your, on top of your forearm, put your arm underneath your armpit, whatever works for you. And the whole goal is to practice hitting putts 
you know, with one arm and keeping everything connected. And you'll find that if you're doing it right, you know, you'll, you'll actually hit putts really well. I mean, you can keep them online really well, but it'll be hard if someone hasn't practiced this to, to control the putter. Um, if you're not using your bigger muscles, you know, if you're using your hands or whatever, the club's going to go all over the place and it's going to be hard to make a good stroke. So I'll do, I'll do quite a few putts right-handed and then I'll do them left-handed. Um, and I'll do them on left to right breakers, right to left breakers. And then, and then you go and you put both hands on it and you take a stroke and you feel like you feel so connected because you have learned to move your bigger muscles with, um, one arm when you put two on, it just feels so much easier. Interesting. Yeah. So that, go ahead. Yeah. Natural transition. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that's one thing that's just a super easy drill to do to help, you know, teach your, your body, how to use the bigger muscles. And then, um, one other one that, that seems to kind of add on to that, that same theme is, um, I'll take a ball and I'll put it, I'll, I'll line up to it like I normally will. And instead of taking a backstroke, I will just do a push stroke. And so I'll be pushing the ball down the line towards the hole. Right. Hmm. And so what this does is this, this, it's kind of the same thing. It eliminates any kind of wristy hit that you can have. And it allows you just to use your core and your shoulders to push the ball down the line and towards the hole and keeps everything super stable. And it just allows you to feel what it feels like to be very connected through the, the putting stroke and down the line. Oh, that's super helpful. Um, and, and another thing too, like speed, it's so easy for our speed to be off, especially with lag putting, uh, you know, for us weekend golfers, your seventh yeah. shots game putting on the PGA tour, your former caddy, Carl Smith said that you're a top five putter of all time on the planet. <laughs> so what would be your advice to us when it comes to just getting our speed right and, and a good first putt, uh, lag putting? I mean, speed is a lot just has, has to do with your feel and your practice, you know, just working on it, getting on the greens. Um, but I think contact is a huge thing. Like if you're not hitting the center of the face consistently with the putter and you are, your, your face is moving a lot like this, you know, it's hard to be consistent. So for me, the, being connected through my putting and not using my wrists quite a bit, you know, quite as much, it's just easier to control your speed because your, your stroke is not rushed or poppy or you're not hitting at it you're not flinching at it you know your, your big muscles are taking over so my, my stroke tends to be probably a little slower than most pros um i know like guys like patrick cantley yeah patrick cantley is very similar his speed and his putting is really good you see how slow I'm back and through and he uses a lot of his shoulders and so um <clears throat> speed something you just got to practice and the more consistent your strike is with your stroke the I think overall, the better it's going to be. What about picking a target? I know you, your buddy Aaron Baddeley doesn't have pick a target, one of the best putters ever. But but yeah. for us, like, what what's a smart way just just to find a way to to pick a good target? Um, I always work my way back. I start at the hole and work my way back to the ball. So I'll kind of try to see and envision where the ball should enter the hole the last three feet. Because you know, when reading putts, you're going to get the most break the last few feet when your ball's moving the slowest, right? So you kind of want to see where the ball should enter by what I do. I, I go up 
couple feet away from the hole and I'll feel the break with my feet and see it with my eyes. So I'll kind of feel what the slope feels like. And from three feet kind of hover my putter and, you know, imagine hitting that putt and seeing where, where I feel like I need to play the break. And then you kind of, when you go back to the, where your ball is, you kind of trace back where you see that coming in and then connecting the dots. <clears throat> so that, that's, that's how I do it. And uh, I know that, I think most tour players kind of work their way like that through the, through the putting. Super helpful. We could, uh, we could do that right now and probably get better with our putting. Uh, yeah. Andrew, really enjoy the time, man. Thanks for uh, taking some time uh, and, and chatting for a bit. Sure. Thanks for having me, Garrett. All right. My thanks to Andrew Putnam for coming on the pod. I, I love some of his thoughts there. Obviously he was, uh, had some initial opinions about the rollback possibility and, you know, I thought that he had some good good stuff there, especially the point about having to use a different ball. If that were to happen, it, it happened in majors, for example, if they went with a different ball at the Masters or only a certain uh, number of events in a year, how, how tricky that would be uh, for a player to adapt just for those short, you know, four four weeks out of the year. So good insight from him. And also I love what he said about uh, final groups, the experience he's gotten being in the final group and, and what he's expecting out of himself, what he's learned uh, kind of from his younger years and, and going forward here. So anyway, hope you guys had a, a blast listening to Andrew and uh, those putting tips were awesome as well. I think a lot to learn from, from Andrew. So Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll talk soon here on the podcast.